order, rebellion, rejection of authority. You see, without the work of God's grace in our hearts, we will be driven by our jealousy and selfish ambition. That will lead to disputes and rebellion against the authorities God has placed in our lives. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What are the two chief characteristics and motives that always accompany every form of human wisdom? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom has part five of his series titled Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. In James chapter three, it's obvious that James is discussing two kinds of conflicting and opposing sets of wisdom. We've also observed the four principles that define God's wisdom. Today, we turn in the other direction. Tom will give you an analysis of hell's wisdom, the ungodly, earthly, and if you're not careful, seductive and attractive wisdom that captures so many with its counterfeiting power. You'll be challenged to examine yourself and your influences. Will you give heed to the Apostle James' warning? Keep that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now here on The Word Unleashed. We turn again to James chapter 3. The ancient words that come to us from the pen of the half-brother of the Lord Jesus and the man who ended up as the head of the Jerusalem church who now writes to those who had been scattered from his church across that area of the world because of persecution. In the early 1980s, New York University professor Daniel Yankelovich created a huge stir with his book entitled New Rules, Searching for Self-Fulfillment in a World Turned Upside Down. In the book, he documented a massive shift in social values that occurred in the 1970s. Many of us lived through those years. The old rules, Yankelovich said, stress duty to others especially to your own family. Under the old rules, if you were selfish and got caught being selfish, you were embarrassed, even as a non-Christian. But not anymore. People now live for what he calls the duty-to-self ethic. This ethic teaches that our primary responsibility is for self-fulfillment for our own needs, and for our own personal interests. Yankelovich's surveys showed that a frightening 83% of Americans had bought into these new rules, either in whole or in part. It was sometimes, sometime later that James Hunter used the same questionnaire that Yankelovich had used and he surveyed students and faculty in 16 leading evangelical colleges and seminaries. Listen to what Hunter writes, his conclusions from the survey that he conducted. The percentage of evangelical students agreeing with these statements far exceeded the corresponding percentage of the general population. Self-fulfillment is no longer a natural byproduct of a life committed to higher ideals, but rather is a goal 
pursued rationally and with calculation as an end in itself. The quest for emotional, psychological, and social maturity, therefore, becomes normative. Self-expression and self-realization compete for self-sacrifice as the guiding life ethic. This is what the world lives for, to be self-absorbed, to be fulfilling self in some way. The new ethic is the duty to self. That may be the mindset of the culture, and in fact it is, it permeates our culture. But in the paragraph that we've been studying, James deals an absolute death blow to that kind of thinking for Christians. Let me read this paragraph again to you. James chapter 3, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. You follow along as I read them. He writes, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In this paragraph, it's obvious that James is discussing two kinds of wisdom, two conflicting, opposing sets of wisdom. Let me remind you of the path we've taken over the last few weeks, briefly remind you of the points we've discovered in this passage. First of all, we saw the priority of godly wisdom. Even in the question itself, who among you is wise and understanding, is implied that this is important and that to his Christian readers, the issue of wisdom would have been a priority. It would have been important in their lives. Secondly, we saw the definition of godly wisdom. What is this wisdom that is from God? Biblical wisdom, we discovered, consists of three essential elements. First of all, fearing God. Secondly, understanding God's ways, that is, what God is like and how he acts toward us. And thirdly, applying God's ways and God's words to our own lives. That's biblical wisdom. Thirdly, we looked together at the acquisition of godly wisdom. How is it that you and I can gain this kind of wisdom from God? We discovered that there are four ways the Bible teaches us. Number one, first and foremost, through a saving knowledge of Christ, who, as Paul says, has become to us the wisdom of God. Wisdom begins the day you bow your knee to Jesus Christ. Secondly, we discovered we acquire wisdom through a thorough knowledge of God's Word. Wisdom is imparted through this book. This is God's wisdom revealed to us, and only as we understand and grasp the truth of this book do we gain the mind of Christ, do we gain the wisdom of God. 
Thirdly, we acquire godly wisdom through the influence of wise companions. He who is a companion of the wise will be wise, the proverb says. And fourthly, we discovered we receive godly wisdom through prayer. If any man lack wisdom, James himself says in chapter 1, let him ask of God. We receive God's wisdom in those ways. Fourthly, we saw in weeks past, last week actually, the test for God's wisdom. How can you be sure that you have God's wisdom? The end of verse 13 puts it this way, let him show, if you think you're wise and understanding, let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. There are three tests in that brief half verse. First of all, there's the test of wise deeds. Let him show godly wisdom in his deeds or by his wise actions. The second test is a consistent life. Those obedient actions, James says, will be sustained as good behavior. That's better translated as a way of life. There won't be just sporadic acts of wisdom, but there will be a life characterized by, consistently characterized by, this kind of act. And the third test for God's wisdom that we saw was if it's real biblical wisdom, it will at the same time express itself in the gentleness that comes from true wisdom. What is What does it mean to be gentle? What does that word mean? Well, we discovered that there are two aspects of the word. One has to do with God, and the other has to do with the people around us. Gentleness shows itself toward God in a calm acceptance of our circumstances, of his providence in our lives, as from God for our good, and we absolutely refuse to complain about those circumstances or to argue with God. Toward man, gentleness expresses itself in a humble, gracious, gentle spirit, even when wronged. What both of those aspects of gentleness have in common is a control over your spirit. In one case, it's a control that freely submits yourself to God's wisdom and God's will, even if you don't understand or you disagree. And On the other hand, it's a self-control that allows you to be gentle and gracious even when you're being attacked, even when you're being hurt by others. If you're truly living in God's wisdom, the test is you will be gentle in those two senses. Now, last time we ended our study by beginning to examine a fifth point that flows out of this passage. In verses 14 to 16, James gives us an analysis of hell's wisdom. An analysis, not of God's wisdom, but of this counterfeit wisdom. James' point in verses 14 to 16 is that some people think they really fear God, they think they understand God's ways, they think they are applying God's truth to their lives, when in fact they have embraced a counterfeit wisdom that originates not from heaven, but from hell itself. Now, what exactly is this counterfeit wisdom? We defined it this way last time. It is every thought, every attitude, every word, every act that is contrary to God's revealed wisdom in his word. Everything that finds itself contrary to God's revealed 
wisdom. On the one hand is God's wisdom revealed in the scripture for us. On the other hand is everything else in all the various forms and expressions of human wisdom that stand in opposition to God's wisdom. Understand, though, when we talk about human wisdom, it's not like there's one thing that you can define as human wisdom. Instead, human wisdom is like a chameleon that seems to change itself to match its circumstances. You can see it everywhere, in various contexts, and looking like various things. It is everything in the end that is opposed to God. For example, human wisdom drives the secular culture around us. It can be found easily in the prevailing mindset of our day with its orgiastic pursuit of self-fulfillment and self-absorption. That's human wisdom. That fulfillment of self or duty to self-ethic that Yankelovich was talking about, that's an expression of human wisdom, and it permeates the culture around us. But it also can even take on human wisdom, can even take on countless spiritual forms. It can be found even in the church. It can be wrapped in the cloak of piety. It can disguise itself in religious language and defend itself with arguments from the Bible. Let me say that again. It can defend itself with arguments from the Bible. But here is the key. Listen carefully. Regardless of how many forms and manifestations human wisdom may take, whether it's secular or spiritual, whether it is absolute self-absorption and self-pursuit are cloaked in the garb of religiosity, human wisdom looks the same at its core. And so what James is going to help us to do is understand the core issues behind all the manifestations and all the forms that human wisdom may take because he wants us to be able to recognize it. So he provides us here in verses 14 to 16 with an analysis of hell's wisdom in whatever form it takes. These things are always true of hell's wisdom, of that wisdom that is in opposition to God's wisdom. Now let me just track you through this, give you a brief outline of his analysis here. In verse 14, he's going to describe for us the chief characteristics of hell's wisdom. In verse 15, he describes its origin or its source. And then in verse 16, he identifies the results that it always produces in whatever form it takes. So let's look first in verse 14 at the chief characteristics of hell's wisdom. Verse 14, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. You see, whatever form human wisdom takes, it always has two dominant characteristics in the human heart. Two characteristic motives always lie behind any wisdom that stands opposed to God's revealed wisdom. So you can always recognize it this way, whether it's wearing a religious robe or whether it's wearing the secular mindset of the culture. It'll always be characterized by these two chief characteristics. Their motives. James says, do an inventory of your motives and you can quickly discover whether you're living by God's wisdom or a counterfeit wisdom. The key in verse 14 
is the phrase, if you are, and it's the present tense, if you are having in your heart. He says, look at your heart. Is your heart consistently manifesting these qualities, these negative qualities? He says, ransack your heart and see if you are consistently motivated either by bitter jealousy or by selfish ambition. If you discover that these monsters rule in your heart, then you're not living by God's wisdom regardless of what it may appear to others. Regardless of how religious you are, of how much Bible knowledge you know, or how pious you may appear to others, if you find these motives living and breathing and ruling in your heart, then you're not living by God's wisdom. It's interesting, these two vices here in verse 14 often come together in the New Testament. You find them in the same verse in 1 Corinthians 3.3 and 2 Corinthians 12.20, Galatians 5.20. They're often related and intertwined, and we'll see why as we go along. So let's look at these two chief characteristics, these two motives that always accompany every form of human wisdom. Look first at bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. The word translated jealousy is the Greek word from which our English word zeal comes. At its most basic level, the word zeal refers to energy, to heat, to enthusiasm for a cause. Now, in the New Testament, this zeal can be good. This energy, this heat for a cause can be good if the cause is good and the motive is right. We see it in the life of Christ. In John chapter 2, verse 17, we're told that when Christ cleansed the temple, it was zeal, heat for God's cause that motivated him. But zeal can be, and frankly most often in the New Testament is used, to speak of an evil motive, a kind of heat that isn't for the right cause or that isn't motivated by the right things but instead is entirely self-oriented. We know this is how James intends this word because of the word he adds to it, bitter, bitter jealousy. Bitter is used in the Greek text to describe sour, bitter-tasting fruit of a wild vine in the Septuagint. So it came to describe a person who is sour and bitter and harsh. In this sense, this bitter or harsh zeal is an intense emotion that is selfishly directed at another person, or as it's translated here, jealousy. One lexicon defines it this way. It denotes the kind of zeal which does not try to help others, but rather to harm them. Here's the key. The predominant concern being personal advancement. Another person writes, it is a fierce desire to promote one's own opinion to the exclusion of those of others. To be jealous is to feel resentment against someone else because you see that person in competition with you and you resent their success or their advantages or something else about them. Jealousy is a terrible, terrible thing. The story has often been told, perhaps you've heard of it, of two men who lived in a certain city. One of them was jealous and the other was covetous. The ruler of the city sent for these two men and explained to them that he wanted to grant each of them one wish. 
But there was one caveat. The one who chose first would get exactly what he asked for, and the other man would get twice of whatever it was the first man had asked for. And then the king told the jealous man that his was the first choice. Now, this immediately, of course, threw the jealous man into a quandary. What to ask for? Because he knew that whatever he asked for, however great, however wonderful, that his companion was going to get twice as much. And so he thought for a while, considered it, and after careful consideration, he asked this, that one of his eyes would be put out. Because he couldn't tolerate the thought that his companion would have an advantage over him, and so he came up with a plan, the only thing he could think of that would allow him in the end to be better off than his companion. That's how jealousy thinks. It is an ugly, ugly sin. And yet we're all tempted to this sin. We're all tempted to resent others for their success, for their gifts, for their position, etc. You are tempted by this sin to be jealous of others. This jealousy or this bitter resentment can express itself in dozens of ways in all our lives. It can express itself in the family. Sibling rivalry is nothing but an expression of jealousy. Parents who have been divorced fighting for the affection of their children. There's so many different ways this can express itself in the family. It can express itself at work, fighting for that promotion, resenting others who get it. It can express itself at school, resenting others for the opportunities that they receive. It can even express itself, and I know this will come as a shock to you, at church. Consider a couple of very practical expressions of how this manifested itself. Let's turn first to the New Testament and see it there. Turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul here rebukes the Corinthians, which seemed to have needed to be a sport for Paul because there were so many things to rebuke in this church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. Now, don't misunderstand this text. It's sometimes been mistaught that this sort of is a separate category of Christians who live all their lives as if they were unregenerate and pagans. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying to the Corinthians, in this issue that I'm addressing, you're acting fleshly. And he, he says this to them, verse 3, For since there is jealousy, there's our word, and strife, which is what always results from jealousy among you, you are, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am a Paul, and another, I am a Paulus, are you not mere men? Who is, who is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. You see, jealousy can express itself even in the life of the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you see this again, again in the Corinthian church, where it seems to have been a pandemic. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, Paul says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come... I may find you to be not what I wish. In other words, you're, you're not going to be doing what I've taught you. And if that happens, then I'm going to be found by you to be not what you wish. In other words, you're not going to like it if I come and these things are still happening. 
that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, and disturbances. Folks, those are all words for what was going on in the church. Unfortunately, many of us have had the opportunity to witness these same kinds of things firsthand in some of the churches that we've attended in the past. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series, Wisdom from Hell versus Wisdom from Heaven. Tom will have part six for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.